Hello out there and welcome. This is Smart Prosperity, the podcast. It's a show about the green economy in Canada, the current affairs, the politics, the business, the technology, and the ideas at the intersection of the environment and the economy. We do a new episode every two weeks, and they are always 25 minutes or less. I'm your host, Eric Campbell. On today's show, can Joe Biden live up to his climate plan? We mark the inauguration of the 46th President of the United States with a panel of three U.S. climate policy insiders, Anna Unruh-Cohen, Tim Profeta, and Joe Kruger, who talk about the path ahead for the U.S. and climate change. On top of that, my colleague Alice Irene Whitaker stands in for Mike Moffat to report on the five other things happening in the green economy this week. Buckle your seatbelts, because this episode of Smart Prosperity, the podcast, and the Biden-Harris administration starts now. We're going to invest $1.7 trillion in securing our future so that by 2050, the United States will be 100% clean energy economy with net zero emissions. By the end of my first term, we will have an enforcement... A not frequently acknowledged fact is that U.S. carbon emissions actually fell during Donald Trump's presidency. So now imagine what the U.S. can do when their federal government actually tries. And try it will. The Joe Biden-Kamala Harris administration enters office on the back of what has been described as the most ambitious climate agenda ever anywhere. By the numbers, it's in the trillions of dollars, and the policy menu includes all the bells and whistles. But my next guests warn that campaign promises don't necessarily match up with action once elected, especially on tricky, all-encompassing issues like climate change that require all branches of the U.S. government working together in order to be effective. So, what can we expect for U.S. leadership on climate change under Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and what gets done in the first year in office. To help us wrap our heads around that, I'm extremely excited to welcome three U.S. policy insiders, the kind of people I don't get to speak to every day. Let me introduce them. Anna Unruh-Cohen is the staff director of the U.S. House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. This is a special congressional committee appointed by the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, in 2019 to deliver ambitious climate policy recommendations to Congress. Anna has previous staff roles with the House of Representatives, the Senate, and also some time working with the Natural Resources Defense Council. Anna, thanks for being on the program today. Thanks for the invitation. Next, I'm introducing Joe Kruger. Joe's the Policy and Strategy Director at the Georgetown Climate Center at Georgetown University. He, too, has an amazing depth of experience. He's worked at the state government level, also for the Bipartisan Policy Center, the White House Council on Environmental Quality, and the Environmental Protection Agency, among others. Joe, thanks for being here. Great to be with you. And finally, Tim Profeta is the director of Duke University's Nicholas Institute for Environmental Policy Solutions. He has had staff roles in Congress, including being an environmental advisor to former Senator Joe Lieberman. Tim is also the co-chair of the Climate 21 Project, which drew on 150 experts to produce a 300-page blueprint for how the Biden administration can implement a whole-of-government response to climate change. Tim, thanks for being here today. A pleasure. 
Tim, let's start with you. For people trying to wrap their heads around the Biden climate agenda, there's a lot to look at. There's a $2 trillion infrastructure and clean energy plan. There is a $1.7 trillion clean energy and environmental justice plan. There's policy recommendations from a unity task force, a clean energy for Biden transition plan, etc., etc. You get the point. The first question on people's minds might be, can Biden do everything that he has talked about doing on climate change? There always is a uh, schism between the ambition of a presidential campaign and what can be executed once an administration comes into governance. And uh, I don't suspect this would be any different. However, I do think it's very clear that the climate, the ambitious climate plan of the Biden-Harris administration is one of the central foci of their administration. Look at the transition site, and for people like Anna and Joe and I, have been working for a long time in the United States to have, you know, one of the four priorities on, on the president-elect uh, transition site being the climate crisis is is a change and a welcome one, and so I expect that level of ambition and priority will carry through. So you know, the, the question will really be how do they execute the ambition? I think the investment agenda, particularly in the infrastructure, to make the transition will be likely to be a very high priority in, in the legislative proposals I'm sure Anna will talk about. So that should find its way through, a lot of that should find its way through. The regulatory agenda will find its way through, um, but it'll be, you know, it'll be challenging across the board to uh, uh, both politically and, you know, somebody just gave the metaphors is like the Lincoln Tunnel going to New York City. There's so much priorities and so little bandwidth. All these things are gonna have to get through that tunnel the other side, to, to uh, and, and there's just a lot to do. And Tim, there's different ways of getting a climate agenda through, uh, here I'll borrow your imagery, through the Lincoln Tunnel. On one hand, Congress might play a role uh, in moving that agenda through the legislative branch, uh, and on the other, the president and his cabinet might move parts of it simply through the executive branch. Given your focus uh, on the executive branch, What's your forecast on its role in moving the president's climate agenda, particularly in the first year? A couple of, of, of the key things I'd, I'd expect. I think, you know, one of the things that President Biden will have to do is he will have to have a new NDC for Glasgow when they, we, we come back to the table in Paris. And I think that will have to happen in, in months, not years time. So I think what we're going to really look at is like what I would call the investment agenda through Congress coupled with kind of a regulatory agenda uh, using the pre-existing authorities to address climate, you know, carbon pollution in the United States uh, through the executive branch. So one the key, the key agency will probably be the Environmental Protection Agency and its authorities under under the Clean Air Act to both regulate the stationary sources, the smokestacks, and the vehicles. And I would expect quick rulemaking under those authorities to be key priority of, of the administration. Um, then I also think there's going to be the other key uh, effort will be sort of the economic policy coming out of the Treasury Department and thinking about what how that investment is deployed in ways that's addressing bottlenecks in our transition to, to the carbonized sector. Uh, and then other programs that have more of a partnership approach, like in the agricultural sector. Um, you know, one, one thing that we're talking quite a bit about is whether things like the agriculture sector can create a carbon bank to create payment schemes for lower carbon agriculture. 
So that's a longer answer. And, and again, but I think it's going to be a whole government approach. So there's going to be something going on in Justice Department and there's going to be something going on in the Defense Department on this as well. It will not just be kind of stovepiped into these, into these key agencies. Anna, you're deeply involved in the legislative branch. And until the two runoff elections for Georgia's Senate seats in early January suddenly gave Democrats a majority in the Senate, it looked like Congress wouldn't be an easy ride for the Biden climate agenda. Has that now changed? And what role do you see the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives playing in moving the climate agenda in the first year under Biden? You know, the... Georgia election results um, were critical um, and gives um, democratic control in the Senate, um, allows them to set the agenda at committees and what comes to the floor, which which is absolutely critical. But, you know, it is 50-50 with Vice President Harris having to sit there to break ties potentially. So that's you know, that's the narrowest of margin. Um, the House margin uh, majority for Democrats is also very narrow as well. So, um, you know, the the way our legislator works, you know, that's going to require a, um, working across the aisle um, or in the case of the House, you know, putting things together that has um, the full support of the range of the Democratic caucus, which which is broad. Um, but that said, I think Congress will be looking to work um, in a complementary fashion with the executive branch um, and working very closely with the Biden-Harris administration. So the things that they're able to do on the regulatory side under their existing authority, you know, we can um, hopefully be moving things in Congress that um, complements that, that supports that, that invests in some of those programs that provides financial incentives um, so I think, um, you know, at the start of the Obama administration, there was a big legislative push that I was around for as well. And then we kind of switched to um, the executive branch. And I think that's uh, not going to be the case right out of the gate. Um, you'll see um, the Biden administration working closely with Congress. Anna, what's the most important piece of the climate agenda that you see Congress helping advance in 2021? in particular on what needs to be done to help um, decarbonize the electricity sector by 2035. That was, you know, a major um, uh, campaign promise. How does Congress help with that decarbonizing electricity agenda? Um, you know, I think one of the early um, pieces of legislation that Congress will be working on will be an infrastructure package. Uh, and as part of that, there'll be investments in grid modernization, in electric vehicles, um, in other, you know, in other things that will help uh, provide the investment that we need in, you know, the really near term to unlock a bunch of uh, the renewables and clean energy resources um, that we have in the U.S. and that we share, you know, across the border with Canada. Um, so that'll be one. And then Congress will be looking at other things they need to do, like um, potentially um, a clean energy standard um, and uh, getting that in place. I mean, we have a lot of our investor-owned utilities have already made commitments, um, and even really some of our public sector utilities um, are advancing 
on clean energy as well. So um, Congress will be taking a hard look at that. So electricity, for our listeners, is the second biggest source of climate pollution in the United States, with a lot of electricity generated by burning coal and natural gas. So it's an important sector to tackle, and I'm not surprised that we're focusing in on it right now. But let's jump to another topic. The biggest source of climate pollution in the U.S. is the transportation sector, all those fossil fuels burned for personal travel and freight. This was an area of friction under Trump. Trump rolled back some higher fuel economy standards that had been established under Obama, standards, incidentally, that implicated Canada because we traditionally link our fuel economy standards with the U.S. And Trump even threatened court action against the state of California if it went ahead with the higher standards, which it was intending to do. So now enter Biden. Joe, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. How does the Biden administration work with states on transportation? What I would assume will happen is, um, first of all, uh, um, there'll be um, efforts to sort of roll back the the effort that started under the Trump administration to curtail the California waiver and and also uh, to roll back the Obama uh, era standards. I would assume that uh, the Biden administration will go beyond the Obama standards um, and there will be a a very aggressive approach to to, um, consistent with technology and cost to to push those standards as far as possible, probably in concert with California and and the leading states. Um, And so uh, I, I think that will be a real cornerstone of the, the administration's efforts. And, and I think there will be some synergies. Uh, and and you, can, you can envision, for example, uh, big investment uh, programs in, in infrastructure that Congress would pass on uh, electric vehicle chargers uh, infrastructure, for example, coupled with regulatory standards on truck and car uh, uh, standards and state and local initiatives on electric vehicles. Um, So I think working in tandem, uh, active um, processes within the federal government to include state and local governments so that that there's synergies as as all those levels of governments go forward. I think think we'll see a lot of that. Anna, from a congressional point of view, what gets done in year one on transportation? Well, Transportation is is critical, is now our number one sector for emissions, Um, so we definitely have to focus on that. Um, I think, again, Congress will probably be playing a complementary role to what um, the uh, administration can do under their existing authority. So, um, you know, both under the Clean Air Act and um, in the 2007 Energy Act, um, you know, there's direction to um, to the uh, executive branch um, to be um, kind of maximizing fuel economy standards. Um, and, you know, Congress will, will absolutely, absolutely be willing to play a supportive role there if they need to be. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, I think we'll be trying to get more investment on electric vehicles and the infrastructure and other um, possible uh, changes needed there to just help support that um, that build out um, both on passenger vehicles uh, and also on heavier duty vehicles. Um, us, you know, mentioning heavy duty uh, reminds me that um, you know we do have a renewable fuel standard, um, and I think uh, that may be an area that Congress um, takes another look at 
um, maybe not right out of the gate, um, but sometime this year, especially the possibility of transitioning to a low carbon fuel standard. Um, but, you know, I think for some of the heavier duty um, transportation needs, um, we um, obviously are still going to need some some liquid fuels and trying to figure out how to put those together or generate those um, that are uh, lower emission will be really important. Tim, do you have anything to add? Talking about the transition in the in the transportation sector is, a, I think, a good il- illustration, as you heard described by my two colleagues, of how this is going to be a collaborative approach between these different areas of the U.S. government, because which is states thinking about what they need to decarbonize the sector. Also, the states are thinking a lot about what they need in infrastructure investment and are pushing forward electrification. You couple that with the executive branch's ability to create standards and make and drive uh, the, the manufacturers to, to regulation towards higher fuel efficiency with then the big stimulus infrastructure package is likely going to be coming through Congress. And you can see how the three areas need to be collaborating and supporting each other. And I think that's kind of a good snapshot of how we see climate policy and climate ambition being um, sort of quarterbacked by the Biden administration. They have what they have in their own tools in their own hands. They have these investment agenda they'll likely be able to get through Congress. And then they have all these great leadership partners in the states that they don't want to preempt. They want to help keep running in the directions they are. Okay, so really a collaborative approach needed between the executive branch, the legislative branch, and states to reduce emissions from transportation. Now, we only have a couple minutes left. Are there any other key parts of the climate agenda that you expect to move quickly early on in this administration? Well, you know, I think one um, right off the bat, and and we'll start on day one also, is that we talk a lot about build back better as far as investing in, in clean energy. I think there's also a build back better for human capital in the government, uh, particularly in, in the executive branch. You know, we, we've, we've had four years of aggressive rollbacks of, of uh, climate programs and environmental programs um, and really demoralization of executive branch staff, the career staff who are, who are critical. Um, you know, some good staff people have left a lot of state and, and, and I think they're, uh, Dedicated and raring to go, but I but I think the new administration will need to uh, invest in in hiring some people and and, and building up new ish- initiatives. So I think uh, can't underestimate the, the the human aspect of it. Hmm. Joe, that echoes the comments of John Holdren, who was Obama's top science advisor, who suggested that Biden's most important assignment early on is to return scientists and experts to government positions. How straightforward is that process? Um, well, well, I think it's both a short-term and a longer-term process. That the um, uh, so far, the appointees I've seen announced from the Biden administration have been excellent. I think he's going to bring in top people. He's going to bring in experts uh, and top scientists to to uh, the different government agencies and to the White House. Uh, and so that's encouraging, and that that can that can happen quickly. Um, I, I think it's re-energizing the expertise that's already in some of the executive branch agencies. It's, it's not overnight that you can sort of build staff back, uh, particularly career staff, which there's a process that, that it takes to, to hire people and so forth. But, but I think uh, we will see steady progress over the, the first year. Thanks, Joe. And thank you, Anna and Tim. We'll have to end it there for now. 
We heard about priorities for the Biden administration in year one uh, related to the electricity sector, uh, emissions from the transportation sector, and then putting experts back in charge in positions of authority. I want to remind our listeners that these are just excerpts from a full webinar conversation that happened in the days prior to inauguration. And if you want to hear more from our U.S. insider panelists, including on other topics like the likelihood of a carbon price uh, and carbon border adjustments under a Biden administration, you can link to the full webinar from this episode's webpage at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Thanks again to our panelists. They were Tim Profeta, director of the Nicholas Institute at Duke University, Anna Unruh-Cohen, staff director of the U.S. House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, and Joe Kruger, policy and strategy director at the Georgetown Climate Center. Now, the U.S. inauguration is the week's big news in the green economy, but it's not the only news. For all the rest, we usually turn to Mike Moffat, but Mike is off this week, and so standing in for him is Alice Irene Whitaker. Alice Irene is the Director of Communications here at Smart Prosperity Institute, and she's here to share five other things happening in the green economy this week. Alice Irene, over to you. Thanks, Eric. Here are the five things I'm watching in the green economy this week. Number one, General Motors is the latest major car manufacturer to commit to building electric vehicles in Canada. The new deal will see the car manufacturer invest $1 billion to upgrade its plant in Ingersoll, Ontario, in order to start manufacturing electric delivery vans as early as November. The investment creates hundreds of jobs. The GM announcement follows similar Canadian investments announced last year by Ford and Fiat Chrysler. Number two, the year 2020 has tied with 2016 as the world's hottest year on record, according to the European Union's Copernicus Climate Change Service, making the last decade by far the hottest decade on record. Number three, natural disasters caused 210 billion US dollars of damage in 2020, according to German insurer Munich Re. The catastrophic damage in 2020 marks an increase from the $166 billion in the previous year and corresponds with some of the hottest years on record. Number four, Canadian electric vehicle producer Lion Electric struck a major deal with Amazon. The multinational company will buy 15% of the Quebec-based company and will purchase up to 500 all-electric delivery trucks per year until 2030. Number five, The Canada Infrastructure Bank signed a Memorandum of Understanding for Oneida Energy Storage Project, a joint venture between Enerstore and Six Nations of the Grand River Development Corporation. The proposed project includes development of a 250 megawatt energy storage facility in southwestern Ontario, the largest of its kind in Canada. I'm Alice Irene Whitaker at Smart Prosperity Institute, and those are the five things I'm watching in the green economy this week. That's it for today's show. Remember, you can listen to all the shows at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Also on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you stream your podcasts. Have you got feedback, ideas? I want to hear from you. Go to the website for my email address and Twitter handle. I hope you'll tune in again. Until then.